Writer's Block, Anthological Studies, proudly presented by Dapper Dan Pomade. Don't settle for fop, you're a Dapper Dan man. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and The Jump. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the right is... David Avalone, film guy, comic book writer, and very much a Dapper Dan man. I would expect uh, uh, no less. Uh, if you missed any of our previous conversations, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Cecil Castellucci, Alex DeCampi, and many, many more, our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear crack. So double on back and check it all out. Uh, but as always, we have a great show for you today. Avalone, why don't you go ahead and bring the guests on? Ladies and gentlemen, and all at home, Melody Cooper and Fabrice Sapolsky. Hi, everybody. Howdy. howdy. Good morning, folks. Um, Melody, why don't you tell the the fine the fine kids listening at home a little bit about yourself? Oh, where do I start? Uh, well, I'm originally from New York. Um, I started out as a playwright, and I have been living in LA for about two years. And I um, about two years ago, I did the HBO Writing Fellowship. Mm -hmm. I've always written uh, genre work. Even when I was writing plays, they were, I, I didn't know this till later, they were always haunted by ghosts. And I realized that and I said, okay, all right. Um, but my, I write sci-fi and horror. And I wrote a sci-fi pilot for the HBO Fellowship. And before I finished that, I was, uh, I was staffed on the TV show, Two Sentence Horror Stories. And uh, so I wrote two episodes for that as a staff writer. And then uh, I was tapped to join Law & Order SVU as a story editor. And my first episode of that just aired this past week. Which Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. It was, I got to fly to New York to be on set to produce the episode, which was amazing to go back home and get to do that. That is um, amazing. Bef yeah. Bef before I let Fabrice tell his, uh, his story, I have a law and order SVU story that just cracks me up every time I think about it. I knew Mariska Hargitay when she was working at Book Soup on Sunset Boulevard. Get out. Um, and the last time I saw her amazing. in person in my life, we, we were friendly for probably five, six months. Last time I saw her in my life, we both had convertibles. We were driving down Sunset Boulevard. She pulled up next to me at the light at Fairfax and said, I'm going to New York. I just got cast on a Law & Order spinoff. I said, that's great. Have a great time. See you soon. That's the last time I saw her. But it was uh, I was very happy for her. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. She's so fun on set, too. I mean, it's, Good. Uh... I'm glad to hear that she was, she was a, rel a relentlessly charming person in – uh, in person back in the day. Like that's mostly what I remember about her. She was very, very charming and very, very fun to be around. Yeah. She was, she was little, little, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna, I, I, I was gonna uh, go off on a tangent. Little known fact, I once played a dead body on a CSI episode. Nice. That, dead bodies are like, we have a waiting list on SVU for people who are celebrities who want to play dead bodies. No lie. Yeah. I was like, what? Uh, and well, I should, when my father moved to LA, one of our cousins was first AD on Diagnosis Murder. And I think my father's first show business experience in LA as a 70-year-old man was being a dead body on Diagnosis Murder. Awesome. 
It's great. Oh, I should also add that of my connection to Fabrice is that he he actually is responsible for me writing my very first comic book and um, introduced me to Mark Wade and um, who read one of my sci-fi pilots and asked me to pitch for Omni. Um, and I ended up writing issues five to ten. Um, and and then I've worked most recently on Nora's The New Black, the wonderful right. anthology that Fabrice put together, which he'll tell you about, I'm sure. Wonderful transition. And Fabrice, All right. tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I, uh, I I go by many names. Some some people call me the crazy Frenchman because this is where <laughs> I'm from. Um, and uh, I, I've been in I've been in comics for about 25 years. And uh, and uh, among the things that I did, I did a lot of things. I write, I draw, I edit, I letter, I design. I publish now. I have a, a publishing company called Fair Square Comics. Uh, and but mostly people know me as the co-creator of Spider-Man Noir for Marvel Comics, uh, which obviously is huge. Uh, mm -hmm. But besides that, I've I've had. Um, uh, creator-owned books at Image, at Dynamite, and and now, of course, to my company um, at Fair Square Comics. Uh, I also served. This is where I brought Melody for two and a half years as senior editor at Humanoids here in LA. Uh, so I mean, it's like a, a, I wouldn't say I'm an athlete, but if I was an athlete, I would be a complete one. Um, <laughs> Five to a guy, huh? I, I totally I totally get that. I always tell people if you want to see the if you want to see either the results of a disordered mind or a complete renaissance man, look at my IMDB page and see all of the various yeah. things I have done at one time or another. Well, uh, let, let me tell you this: the inspiration the to pay the rent, but you know, don't tell. Not just that. The problem is that like I have hard time having people saying no to me. So when people say to me, "Oh, you can't do that." I will try to do this, and I'm self-taught on every account. Like, I mean, I started as a comic book journalist. I was self-taught. I'm a designer. I've been a designer since 1991. I'm self-taught, and and drawing self-taught. Everything self-taught. I've been a serial entrepreneur that had like this is my fifth company right now, Square Comic. So I mean, everything I I I I don't know how to do. I set a goal to myself for myself to to be able to to master it. So. This is this is very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I think it, um, it I, I think we might have to, to ask you a lot of roads. What's that, Ryan? I was just gonna say I think we might have to ask Fabrice to uh, change his uh, title on the video to the Crazy Frenchman. But uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know how many look, votes we have. My, my my co-editor on Noise and You Black, TC Harris, uh, when he calls me, he say, "Hey, Crazy Frenchman," and he always starts like that. So, <laughs> where are you from originally, Fabrice? I mean, aside from. France is I was born. I was born in Paris, born and raised, um, and I lived there until I was forty-four years old. Where I decided oh. that you know what, let's let's move and see what's across the pond. And yeah. I was in New York first from twenty fifteen to twenty seventeen, and then LA. Nice, nice. I was in France two, three years ago making a World War One documentary because why, you know. Why not? Why not? In France, make a world war. This one does. <laughs> so I was in Paris and Verdun, and you know, points, points east. I love, I love when you say Verdun. Can you repeat that? Verdun. 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 Yeah. Verdun. Verdun. Good. 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 All I remember about it. I'm was not, not going to ask French. Melody because I know she knows. <laughs> she speaks actually a decent French. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. I do, I do not speak a decent anything, including English, but I'm from New Jersey. So, <laughs> um, so we wanted to talk about, uh, or at least begin talking about anthologies. And, you know, have you, Fabrice, have you always been interested in them? Have, was, uh, was Nora's the, the New Black your first one? Or, you know, what, what draws you to that? I've been under the impression all my life as a professional in this industry that anthologies would never work. And that was before Kickstarter. Right. So, uh, yes, Noir's and New Black was my first anthology, but what an anthology. And, and um, it's, it's interesting because this, when, when TC and myself uh, started this journey, it was like out of anger. It was out of, of anger uh, of like being confronted to what was happening last year and not being able to do anything. And, and again, I always say that like, uh, when you're an immigrant in this country, the first thing that they tell you when you get your green card is you're a guest, please don't abuse hospitality. And, uh, that, that clearly means that if you're not behaving, we're going to kick you out. Um, and with the previous administration, I was terrified. And so last year I was like at home and um, where I live in LA, there was a lot of, there were a lot of demonstrations like in the streets, like under my window. And, um, and I was like, I can't stay and do nothing. And, and so I was talking with, with, with TC and, and he said like, well, man, do what you know how to do, do, do something comics related. And this is where we started talking and talking and talking and it led to Noir's the New Black. And it was like, it was it was so organic that when we started the campaign, we secured a few names, like the people that, of course, I knew from the industry um, that were interested in the project. But I told them, you're not going to write anything until we know we have the funding. So when we arrived to the end of the campaign, we had nothing. We had no pitch. We had no art. We had nothing. And th this is the miracle of that book, is that everything came together pretty quickly and everyone was extremely professional. Um, and when you, when you were dealing with a, a cast of 40 different creators, you have a lot of drama, you have a lot of ego, you have a lot of like everything, you get into the lives of everybody. But I must say, everyone delivered. Everyone was amazed. And, um, and the fact that we were able to put together this anthology in less than six months is a testament to that. Right. And Melody, this was your first comic script or no, the Omni no. stuff was, yeah. Omni was, yeah, but it was my first, first um, anthology. And for me, the trends, it's interesting, the parallels between my first TV job and Noir is the New Black, because my first uh, staff writing job was on an anthology series, because Two, Sen Two Sentence Horror Stories is an anthology. Right. Um, and they're short form. So it's like, you know, your scripts are about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. So you have to get a lot into the four acts that we, we actually have break it into four acts. And so that really par paralleled nicely with the idea of writing comic books in general. And then the idea of anthology. Uh, I love anthologies. I love, and when it comes to film, like Southland, the film, that anthology, I love the framing story and then the, the different segments. I think that's sure. great. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a great way to, it's also a great way to give a lot of different artists a chance to breathe and, and the chance for the world to see their work. So Absolutely. I'm a great fan of it. I love it for that reason as well. But, and then 
And, and then it, it actually allows the artist, for me, my story, Igbo Landing, is a, an idea that I had rattling around for a while, and it's the sci-fi noir. And I get a chance to kind of air out this, this idea that I know I want to develop further now. Right. So it's, it's great all the way around, I think. Yeah, I did my first comics anthology this year uh, as well, or last year, called Nightmare Theater. And it's exactly the same thing. I didn't really, when they asked me if I wanted to do it, I was like, well, this is an opportunity for me to do anything. Mm -hmm. Like, look at all of the things that you've dreamed about doing your whole life. Pick that one. <laughs> you know. And I literally, I did a project that has been in my mind since I was, no kidding, like 12 years old. Um, and it was a good, and it was a, not the perfect fit for their format because it was a horror anthology. And I, I can't say that my story was that horrifying, <laughs> but it had a witch in it. I figured that's, that's enough. That's close enough to, to qualify you for a horror anthology. But I was going to say that the thing that I love about anthologies, film and comic books, the most painful thing about making art to me, is that when you're casting a movie, no matter how big the movie is, no matter how many parts there are, there aren't parts for every talented person you know. There can't be. Uh, you can only have one cinematographer, maybe two if you come up with a good reason to have two. And what I love about anthologies in film and in comics is it's, let's, we can have 20 writers. We can have 20 pencilers. We can have, like, it's, it's a way of getting everyone involved getting a diversity of uh of of style and of thought and that's you know that always uh that always results in some pretty interesting stuff it's it's like a it's like a it's like a jam session right i mean that's that, that's what appeals uh you know uh, to me about it is it's like i mean you know we used to do this uh you know back in uh, college, you know, it's like, okay, well, we got a couple of, you know, a couple of guys with drums. We got this, you know, gal who's a wicked bass player and, you know, everybody's got a guitar and she sings and he sings and they sing and let's get everybody in a room to see what fucking happens. Right. Um, and, and what ends up happening is an amazing night. Right. And, and with most anthologies, uh, not all, but, you know, uh, but magic can happen because you do have these odd pairings and people taking chances. And, um, I mean, I like what Melody said, where it almost becomes like a, um, it's a test kitchen. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like, and, and, and Evelyn, you were kind of hinting at this also, where it's like, well, we all have these little ideas that are floating around in our heads that maybe like, you know, they're seeds, right? And, and we have to choose every day which seed we're going to water. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more we water it, the more it kind of turns into this beautiful plant, right? But um, there's only so much water to go around. There's only so much time, right? Um, and we have to necessarily water the seeds that make us money or that a publisher has engaged on or whatever. And the anthology becomes a way to kind of water a little seed. And like, you know, it doesn't require a lot of resource, right? It's like a, it's a five page thing or whatever. Um, but it can grow into more. I mean, the thing that I hear over and over again, and Avalonia, I think you've said this with the story you were talking about is that you do this five page story or whatever. And you're like, Oh, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> I love this world. I love these characters. Now I need to do a lot more of these. And, um, uh, David Pepos, friend of the show, um, uh, creator of Spencer and Locke, his story for the nightmare theater anthology was this thing that he just fell in love with too. And now he wants to make it an entire series. And 
I've seen it a lot in film where, um, you know, the script that broke me uh, was the script drive, not not the drive that everybody knows now. This was drive before drive. Um, but uh, it was on the first blacklist. But drive started out as a it was a short film, um, basically amounts to like an inciting incident that I did in college. Um, and I made this film and, you know, it, it, it got into some festivals and it was it was good and uh, and, and whatever. Um, but it made me fall in love with characters. It made me fall in love with the world. It made me fall in love with, again, an inciting incident. And then it was the process afterwards of asking a question, okay, well, what happens after this? You know, this, this thing, this thing blows up. And then what happens afterwards? Where do these characters go? How do they, how do they conflict? Who else do they run into? And then that grew into a feature like screenplay that made it on the blacklist and, and, and sold and, and ultimately gave me a film career. Right. And so this is what can happen with this sort of thing. Um, uh, and I've sort of I've sort of followed that model in my film career over and over again. When um, you know we've talked a number of times on this uh, this show about how I don't know it was eight years ago or so, uh, uh, maybe even before then. Uh, now that uh, Hollywood kind of pivoted to IP a lot, right? Original s stories kind of stopped selling, and everything had to be based on a, a book or a comic book or a video game or whatever. And I had a few lean years after selling a lot of original ideas, but finally I got wise and i'm like well if they want ip i'm going to give them i'll just give them ip and yeah. so rather than spending all my time spending a year writing a fucking spec and then taking it out and having it not sell because specs don't sell um i sat down and i wrote short stories uh and 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 the short stories worked a lot like these anthology stories where they're kind of like mini little episodes of this of this larger world right um you're you're getting a, a huge dose of character you're painting a vivid picture of a world and you're giving enough story to show that oh wow there's something bigger here something that needs to be expanded upon and my entire business in hollywood for the last like eight to ten years has been mostly and I know I'm doing it with comic books, but mostly setting up these short stories and then getting paid to build them out into larger products, whether it's, uh, whether it's, um, uh, you know, films, uh, TV shows. I mean, uh, Avalone and I were talking, uh, off camera before you guys popped in. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I have a big powwow with Lionsgate on Sunday about this, uh, this TV series that's hopefully about to go forward. And that, that was, that was built out of this like 15 page short story that, uh, that, that was born the same way that anthology, this anthology was born. So I love it as a test kitchen, right? Uh, uh again, you, 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 you start to mold this concept in, in the smallest way. And then where it goes from there is like usually kind of amazing. Yeah. I, I, I would love. Oh, sorry. Excuse me, Melody. No, I, I was just going to say that I can't tell you how many pitches that I've been doing for based on IP. I've been asked to to develop the you know I'm in development on several projects based on everything from articles to graphic novels to um, to novels, and it's it's um, it's interesting that idea of creating your own IP because I I started founded this group called Nick's Horror Collective, and it's uh, to develop horror content by women. And it's all women driven, um, women writers and directors. And we decided to, when COVID hit, to write our own podcast and to create our own IP. So, and, and out of that, all kinds of other things are starting to happen. I, I actually am gonna, I have an offer to, I can't share too much about it yet, but to develop a scripted podcast myself that kind of came out of that. But it's, uh, I totally agree with you. Um, that it's we, we really need to to create our own IP. Why? I mean, it's all right to develop something else. I think it's it's actually fun, and and I love jumping in to do that and pitch on that. But the um, you know, we can 
we can develop our own ideas uh, in a way. I think what happens in the industry is that they need to see a kind of full package. It's much like, I mean, when you're writing a short story, you're kind of creating a pitch. It's like a full pitch. And they yeah. and executives kind of need to be able to see it to to kind of say, to get on board. And so that's what you're doing with your podcast or your, your graphic novel or your short story. So I think it's just kind of helping them along to see the, what the larger picture and project could be. So, yeah. Absolutely. Fabrice, you were going to say uh, Yes, I wanted to say two things. First, I wanted to say that our, our experience on Noise and New Black is absolutely not a jam session, but more a highly curated playlist. Um, because we brought we brought the hits together and we sequenced it in a way that was working. Um, and it was and it was a completely different approach. We, we, it was not like, okay, let's see what sticks. It was like very structured. There were pitch pitch documents. Uh, the creators had to pitch. Not everyone made the cut. We, uh, out of the 16 stories, we had about 20 pitches. Not everyone made the cut. Everyone had to pitch. And um, and I'm not going to say, of course, who didn't make the pitch, uh, who didn't make the cut. Uh, that would be rude. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's sorry. Uh, but it's it's very important. Uh, it was it was a, a very uh, specific approach to this project. Um, and it's the same thing that I'm going to apply to. Uh, the magazine that I'm launching right now called Mutiny, and we're going to talk about it, I hope, a little yeah, bit later. We'll, uh, we'll get to that. But the thing about IP, and that's very interesting, comparatively to all of you, all of you have Hollywood experience, and I don't. I'm 100% comics. And um, not that I'm not interested, it's just that the opportunities never So right. I'm just going to stay in my lane, and if the opportunity rises, I'll think about it. But right now, my life is comics. And... Um, and at Fair Square Comics, my approach was clearly uh, IP driven. As in, I want to show people by different colors. We have three different colors at Fair Square Comics. You have Fair Square Comics Green, which is the IPs that I own or the company owns. You have Fair Square Purple, which are creator owned stories that are 100% owned by other creators, just like Igbo Landing for Melody. Uh, and you have Fair Square Blue which is for IPs that I license from third-party publishers or third-party creators. Um, and, uh, and that would be what where a mutiny is right now. Uh, so the, everything is structured reg as, as regarding IP. And IP is the, the common denominator for all the, all the books and all the series that we're going to do. And, and if you look at how publishers in America, uh, comic book publishers in America, really uh, fashioned their uh, lineups uh, more and more have a, a, a chunk of, of an IP that they're publishing. They're interested in the media rights or they're interested in, in having a, a chunk of the, of the publishing rights and all. Um, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested at all. I don't want to own anyone else's IP. I have my own um, and, um, and, and I'd, I'd want to make sure that everyone is comfortable uh, operating within their own system. Sure. No, and a lot of companies are very grabby uh, with that. I, I will not name names, but I set up a project once at a company that, let's say, makes very expensive, popular movies and used to make very not popular comic books that nobody read. And oh, uh, I think I know. <laughs> they, they made me an offer on. They made me an offer on uh, a pitch. And the offer was an amazing comic book offer. The, the rates were tremendous, 
tremendous rates. And then the media offer was terrible. And I was like, but you're a terrible comic book company. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want a great, give me a shitty comic book deal and a great media deal. And this would make sense. But you guys are a shitty comic book company. And I like, I was obviously more polite about it. Um, but it's, yeah. uh, it, it is something you have to obviously as a creator uh, look out for. One thing I wanted to say to uh, the concept of, you know, IP changes the rules of how people deal with you on drawing blood. You know, I'm pitching something with the guy who co-created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You'd think there would be some respect for walking in the door with my writing partner created a billion dollar global franchise. Maybe he knows some things about how this stuff is done and nobody listened and everybody wanted to change things and blah, 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 blah. And we didn't do the thing of coming up with a comic book just to sell we are comic book guys. We're like, well, screw it. No one wants to make the TV show. We'll make a comic book. Uh, we made a great comic book that we loved. When it came time to pitch again, this didn't quite work out. But the difference between the notes we got on the pitch and a very large animation company, when we uh, we had a packaging guy who, who sticked a screenwriter on us, and he's a good guy, talented guy, but at the end of the day, they listened to his pitch and said, can we just film the first issue of the comic book as it is? Is that okay? Because that's just easy. Like it, it's right here. It's right here. We see yeah. it. it. Looks good. You have your proof of concept. Can we yeah, screen grab the panels and use them in the pitch deck? I was like, yeah, we can. Sure, we can. We can do that. So after all of that running around in circles, because we had the comic book, they went, well, th this this is pretty good actually. Can we just do this the way it is? And <laughs> and the power of that. And I would say that to a degree. That's always been true in Hollywood. Hollywood has, I, I'm in comic books six years after being in film since 1986. And one wow. thing I always noticed is right now I'm doing development for a very nice company. Uh, they asked me for notes on all their projects. It's very nice. And uh, I got the job because I'm a comic book writer. And the first project they asked me to do with them was Red Sonia. They wanted, they wanted to get an authentic nerds read on their Red Sonia thing. And uh, but now they send me everything. But the point being, 30 years making independent films, nobody asked my advice on any filmmaking things. Five years making comic books for dynamite. We're not talking DC and Marvel here. I wasn't writing oh, Superman. I've been you know, I've been there. I know. But that was enough for people to go, oh, well, Kyle, you're very, you're successful in comic books. We're interested in your ideas. And I'm just like, you know, I I knew all this stuff five years ago before I had written a comic book. <laughs> just, you know, uh, I had a friend who was a playwright in college. And one of the actresses who was in one of his plays was meeting with an agent. And he pretended to recognize the title of one of the plays she had been in. Because being in plays is very impressive, you see. <laughs> like it was, it was, you know, it was like, oh yeah, Bill Zides the 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 zoo. That's great. It's like Ooh, yeah, that was yeah. performed three times at Bard College in 1986. <laughs> you have not seen it. You do not know it. You have not seen it. Uh, but anyway, all of that to say, I did also want to talk, Fabrice. We've talked a little bit uh, previously about your concept for mutiny, and that sounded very yes, interesting. Yes. And I will uh, let yes, us. Yes. Let, let us hear more about that. Tell us what the concept so, so, is. 
mutiny came out of anger again. Like I have a lot of ideas that that come that come out of anger. Because when you're um, when you're stuck at home and you have the desire to to um, to go the next to move to the next step. Um, and you realize that you don't have the marketing power. You will never have the marketing power of of the big companies, even of the medium companies. You will never have. Um, and um, and I looked at what I had um, and what I could do to develop Fair Square Comics as a label. And um, and I looked in, I looked on one of my uh, hard drive, and I had all the issues of the magazine that I did back in France, which lasted 120 issues. It's not nothing. It lasted for 19 years. It was a bi-monthly. It was a first a monthly and then a bi-monthly, and, and it lasted for 19 years. And I was like, hmm. it was, um, it was all, the magazine's name was Comic Box, and it was only on American comics, only on American comics, which was a poor choice from the start because if you know the, the European market and the French market um, a little bit, you will understand that the American comics on the French market are about 10 to 15 percent of the whole thing. So, but I was, you know, this is the comic that I love. I love American comics. I mean, this is this is my preference. Sue me. And um, and so I had all this trove of material, interviews, original art, um, in-depth articles, and I have the rights to all that. And and I'm like, huh, maybe we can do something. And um, I started putting together ideas and instead of like doing another comic box, I designed it as a place where all the publishers would be welcome, all the creators would be welcome, but we would push our agenda, which is the agenda of the company. And that's what I call comics for the rest of us, which is uh, highlighting and promoting and publishing comics from immigrants, minorities, and underrepresented categories of creators. And, um, so it, it was it was very important to me to find the right tool to express that. And Mutiny became that tool. So in Mutiny, you will have 40% of editorial that will be a mix of some of the features that we had in Comic Box and mostly new features with current creators in America. And you will have the 60 other percent will be short stories from independent creators, most of them being immigrants, minorities, underrepresented categories of creators. And, um, and the idea is to have, okay, the Switzerland of comics and people coming together. And if you don't know us, you come from your, for your Spider-Man, your Spawn, your Batman, your, your Wonder Woman, but you stay for the creators that you discover in the magazine. That's great. So issue zero, issue zero is, is currently being funded on Kickstarter, but we're already planning issue one and and the future. It's going to be bi-monthly starting in the fall in every comic store in America. Yeah, I wanted to point out that when this episode goes live, there will be, I think, 48 hours left. In yeah, the 48 or 72 hours. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. So you have, so, to, uh, you have to be quick. <laughs> <laughs> And, link and we'll, include, we'll include a we'll include a link to it in the show notes and everything. Thank so you, people. Uh, Thank so you. They can. But it, it, I, I insist it's 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 a concept that is a, an open concept where everyone is welcome. Yes, it will be curated by me. That's the idea. That's what worked on Noir's the New Black, um, and that's what works in in every publication that 
have been into. Uh, but everyone has a chance. It's just, it's just creators are welcome to to pitch stuff, and I will come up with the mix. I will be the DJ, and I will do the playlist. But all the creators will keep their rights. They will be compensated. It's a licensing deal and not a a, a, a traditional publishing deal. And and hopefully we'll be as successful together as possible, so that everyone can blossom. Two questions come to mind that would be applying to both uh, this and Nora's The New Black. Is Nora's The New Black available somewhere outside of the Kickstarter world? Have you published it elsewhere? Are you going to publish it elsewhere? Yes, it, it will be. So, so the, uh, the original run of Nora's The New Black is almost sold out. We still have a few copies, but not many. But due to the fact that we signed a deal on April 1st with Diamond Comics, they will distribute the book nationwide. It will be a, a, a different edition. We had to make it a different edition, but it, we will uh, reprint and and put it in every store. It will be on Amazon. It will be on. It will Great. be everywhere. Great. And is that so, the yes. plan with Mutiny after the Kickstarter? So there will be. Uh, it will be every other month. You will have a fair square comic graphic novel and a an issue of Mutiny. So it starts in September with Norse. New Black. October, you have Mutiny Number One. November, you will have the reprint of One It Wonder, which was my first creator own from back in the day. Um, and and then we will have another another issue of Mutiny, and then uh, and so on and so. On. So yeah, there will be another a new graphic novel that will be from various creators, not just me and my friends um, that are coming up. We have a, a loaded twenty seven projects until uh, May, mid twenty twenty three. Great. You won't be busy. <laughs> no, at all. I, Absolutely. I, I rage is a great place for art to come from. By the way, I'm uh, yeah. especially in 2020, especially in the last four years. Uh, I my one comic that came out in 2020 was a satire of the Trump response to COVID, called Elvira the Omega Ma'am, uh, <laughs> which uh, you know. Elvira. Was, and it was a thing where you go, is this, uh, can I, is this a thing that's funny to anyone? Is this, uh, but yeah, in, in it, the, uh, there is a zombie outbreak because people, uh, a combination of COVID and uh, taking uh, cleaning products <laughs> orally on the advice of a certain public figure turns you into yeah. a zombie. Seemed like a that's good, uh, yeah. good 2020 story to be telling. Um, the, other, the other thing that is interesting, uh, David, and, and I'll echo what you just said, is that as comic book creators, we have to stretch uh, our, our, our portfolio. We, just, we, we have to, to make different, um, different products for different audiences. And especially when you're either a creator doing creator-own or if you're a freelancer working for the other companies, you, you have to present a set of, of material that's extremely different. That's why, for example, I started a webcomic for uh, young adults in January, and that will not pay off until next year. But it's like, okay, I've never, I've never done young adults. Let's do this. Um, uh, let, I, I want to do romance. I want to do. Yeah, there, there's a lot of things. Like you become, you you become hungrier the more you the more you 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 have access to ideas. You you, yeah. you kind of unlock something in your brain. And your creativity goes loose, and you say, "Okay, if there's a market for it, let's do it." Yeah, yeah I and, agree and with that. But 
I, the podcast that I'm working on is it's a it's a kind of a, rom, a bizarre kind of romantic thriller that's kind of a, a cross between Fleabag and Born Identity, and that's wow. like you usually don't write that, but I pitched it, they loved it, and so I'm developing that. I've got the comic books. I've I'm I just wrote a short play for a festival that's that's about water rights and climate change. And and my two sentence horror stories story was about medical inequality. And it's and the same thing. I I don't always operate. I wouldn't say from anger, but I guess from I don't know a, a kind of fire. You know whether whether it's a it's a passion for what's joyous and what I love, or but but often from a place of also anger, from, from a place yeah. of I need to put it someplace and creativity is to do it creatively for me works. And also when, I, when I'm, uh, you know, honest, when, when I'm, when I'm depressed, the, the saving grace for me has always been writing and, mm -hmm. and that we can express and get through those hurdles in our lives through, through and celebrate things through writing is I think a, a great thing. And to diversify, to be able to do that, it's a really great time because it's, we're able to do that. I shot a short film on my iPhone. I, I'm, I'm directing a film in Canada um, at the end of the year. And there's just so many outlets. And yeah. um, it's, it's, it's it is easier and more democratized than it's ever been. Every yeah. time I sit down at my 27 inch iMac to edit a feature film that's going to be in movie theaters, I think about all those edit bays I sat in in the 90s that cost someone a million dollars to build that we were paying $500 an hour to be in. And no one needs that anymore. <laughs> that literally, love it. everyone is carrying a studio better than any studio yeah. that existed in the 90s on their person at all times. Mm -hmm. And the Library of Alexandria, by the way, on top of everything else, That's anything right. that you could ever. The day when you used to say, oh, uh, there's that scene in uh, Citizen Kane that, that, that would help you with this. It's like, and here it is. Let me just. I'm sure someone has that clip on YouTube. Someone else has wanted to show someone that scene once. Uh, and that's, that's just a, that's, that's, that ability is wild. The first thing I used Kickstarter for was to produce a low budget feature film, uh, which is still out there streaming happily away. I was going to ask where, what uh, network is two sentence horror stories on? I don't think uh, we've right now, it's on Netflix. Now you can, you okay. can catch uh, both seasons on Netflix. And um, my episodes are called Quota, which is about an Amazon-like um, shipping company where okay. things go awry, and Ebeji, which is about these uh, twin uh, sisters and uh, the medical uh, situation that they deal with. <clears throat> I think one of the first things you learn as a writer, and if you don't learn it, you're in trouble, is that everything you write is personal and everything you write is autobiography. Yes. Every yeah. single yeah. goddamn and all the characters like, are you. All no the characters matter, are you. No matter how outlandish and unrelated <laughs> to your life, what your writing is, it you, it somehow you it still manages to be one hundred percent autobiography. Oh, you know, and, so and, <laughs> and and we and look, and we all you know, we all have the desire to drop that veil every once in a while. The thing I did with Kevin drawing blood is very much. It is not terribly fictionalized autobiography, but it is fictionalized. Um, but there's there's no way around it. And if you're not doing that, you are, I guarantee you, you are not doing good work. 
Yeah. Well, you're not doing good work and you're not doing good work and and it's not, it's not healthy. Right. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, writing becomes, I I mean, I think we've all kind of said it without saying it, like writing is our therapy. Writing is how we, we may also be in therapy, but writing is how we really work things out. It's how we wrestle with our demons. We get them in a room and we beat the shit out of them. Right. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the rage thing is so interesting because we all have it and this is how we all deal with it. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and if history, has taught us anything, if I can go a little bit Zen, Melody, you said it right off the bat, is that, I mean, I think rage is that fire, right? And mm-hmm. and, and and it is this fire that can easily burn out of control, right? And so we're gonna have it, there's no making it go away. And and and, and here is the situation, it, it can either, so so something happens in the world, right? We, we, we Like it, it's, it's happened five times every day for the last year, right? We've seen it, uh, you, you pick your brand, whatever, but somebody comes up or something comes up and pours a giant fucking tub of gasoline on your fire. Right. And at that point it can either burn out of control and completely consume you. Right. Or you can harness it and it can send you somewhere special. It can send you to the fucking moon. Right. And I think that, that if we have one skill, one superpower as writers, it's that, uh, it's that we have this way to not let it consume us, to not let it burn out of control. We, we can, we can harness this, we can, we can make it into this rocket fuel and we can put it into a book or we can put it into a movie. We can make it into something substantial, which then people can pick up and read and they see themselves in it. They see that same rage. They recognize that you are wrestling with the same demons they are and, and, and reading it ends up being therapy for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, uh, that it is, it is a giant bucket of water that they can use to sort of toss on their fire and yeah. it, it may not extinguish everything, but, but it, but it keeps it from burning out of control. Right. And that's the, yeah. you know, that's the beauty of this whole thing. I mean, and, and, and I love it. And the particularizing of the, of, of our experience, even though we're doing it through different characters, but to be very particular is what makes it so universal and why other people have, it resonates with other people. And that's, that's what I love as well. It's, and, it's and, the specifics and where it lives. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it also speaks to the why as writers and creators, we do really need to live a life. You know, you need to get out and actually, you know, do shit, you know, <laughs> really get out there and be, Oh um, yeah. You know, whatever that means for you, it can it can mean reading, you know, a host of books. It can be like I love going camping and hiking and traveling and uh, and and just experiencing things because you bring that to the work and it, it just makes it so much more fun. Yeah, and it, I, I would I, I, it, keeps you, it keeps you from being someone who is recycling mm-hmm. scenes they've seen in other things right. rather than going on their lived experience. Uh, you know, on on the. Uh, the week that we're having this conversation, there was, I was seeing a Twitter fight about how very, very dangerous a knife is at close range. And some guy on Twitter is like, a knife at close range is absolutely as dangerous as a gun. And I was like, I've been stabbed a couple of times and without, I am five, six and a physical coward. Without mace, a handgun, a baton, a body armor or backup, I disarmed someone who was stabbing me with a knife. I did not have to kill them. Yes. Uh, and the guy who was saying it's just as dangerous, like, you've seen too many TV shows where someone is stabbed once in the back and they fall over and stop breathing. Yeah, but in, in that Steven Seagal movie. Uh, yeah, in the real world, you takes you about four hours to bleed out, in which time hopefully a paramedic gets to you. You know, it's just not... 
It's not, not the same thing. And people who confuse living a life protects you from, and look, as authors, we also, we are free to do research and not necessarily believe what we yeah. saw right. on TV. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, I've, I, I, there's actually a line on after I was stabbed by someone who had a psychotic obsession with me, I was watching an episode of Law and Order <laughs> and uh, someone has been uh, stabbed multiple times and the one of the cops says, well, they're lucky she didn't have a gun. And Lenny Briscoe says, man, nah, these sexual obsession cases, they always they want to they want to stab you. They want to get the knife in. And I was like, a cop literally said that to me about my stabbing. It's like that is, someone did their research and asked the cop that question. <laughs> the cop said, "Usually they want to stab you." So no, it's it's funny. I, I have to speak at uh, I, I've spoken at colleges before, and uh, you know, to would be writers or uh, or will be writers, and it's the first thing I say is um, and I say this as a guy who um, you know, has gone to two film schools. I have an MFA from uh, the American Film Institute. I I studied uh, uh, creative writing in college, but I'm like, study anything but writing or filmmaking. Go off and do something else. Get a fucking engineering degree. Uh, get a history degree. Uh, social sciences, whatever. Uh, just you know, something that gives you um, some base of knowledge to draw on. And then yeah. the other thing is like you know, um, I mean, it's something that I've really you know doubled and tripled down on in, in my career as a as a writer. And I think it's made all the difference. Um, I refuse to you know, I refuse to be the Googler. You know. Uh, um, one of the scripts that kind of really kind of, you know, sent my my career into overdrive was this um, this uh, script called The Ghost and the Wolf, which uh, which which you know made the blacklist and, and kind of put me in a really nice place. Um, but it was about a a Russian Armenian uh, uh, gang war in Los Angeles, um, and it would have been really easy for me to read a couple of books or to get on and Google some stuff about the Russian mob and write that script. But it would have been hollow. It would have been empty. It would have been cookie cutter. It would have been like, like Evelyn said, like recycling shit that everyone has seen before. You know, um, if I write that scene, the exec has also uh, he's also seen that movie. You know, and it's like, oh, I've seen that before. Um, what I did was I had a couple of friends who introduced me to real deal, you know, Russian Armenian mobsters. I I, I spent a couple of weeks with a, an Armenian uh, a, a bookie. I, uh, I I you know spent a couple of days inside a, a Russian contraband house, and those people introduced me to more people and to more people. And I saw how they walked, and I saw how they talked, and I saw the fights that they had, and the stuff that they were obsessed with for weird reasons, and all of that stuff trickled down into the uh, the the script. And then it became alive, right? You know, it became this kind of living, breathing thing. And it was shit that people hadn't seen before. You know, it was almost like you could, you could put a, a white glove on and you could kind of feel the dust on the tables and all that stuff. And and that is what is going to put you over the top. You know, you can, you, you know, just by a little bit of practice, you can learn plot and structure and all of that stuff. Um, but it's really about what is going to give this thing soul and make it a, 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 a original. Like, give me something that can't be Googled. That's the that that is the primary lesson that I that I could give to kind of a a, a young writer, and I think it's yeah. uh, I think it's very important. I has a great idea. I I have a similar experience. I had I wrote a play about the Rwandan genocide, and um, I'd read books, I'd done research. I actually went to at the time General Dallaire, who headed up the the UN, 
um, forces was um, was at um, Harvard teaching. And so I went and I read his book, I went and met him. And so I'd written this play and there was a reading of it. And this woman from Rwanda grabbed me and she said, "You've have you been to my country? And I said, no, I, I haven't yet. She says, it's a beautiful play, but you need to go to my country. And like, I don't know how I'm gonna get there, but I got a Ford Foundation grant and I went to Rwanda for, for a month and a transformational experience because you think you know, you think you understand, but being there to talk to people, to see the place physically and to let that, you know, bring that to the work. And it wasn't even just to the work or just to the play. And, and it was funny because Denai Guerrera um, from um, The Walking Dead ended up starring in it in a, a New York stage and film workshop of it. And the thing about the play, the thing about the experience and that was wonderful that that happened, but really for my life, it's what it brought to me as a person that was most transformational. And it has actually led to my be, I'm now developing a feature for Netflix. And that experience was key to my getting to that place. So it's, it's going to, it's going to trickle, not just to this specific work, but to your whole life. You bring it into the writer's room Absolutely. when you're pitching stories. It's, it's, um, I, I can't emphasize enough. It's, I'm the same as you. I was told by a, a by someone once, don't go to a, a program, writing program. Don't go, don't get your MFA in writing, just write. Um, and I think there are value to the programs, but I think living and writing are the, the two most important things to do. Yeah. And, and you can really, you can tell when you read the writing, see the movies of people who have never been out of the house and never walked away from their computers. I think it's, it's very, it's, it's very obvious when someone ha just doesn't have the life experience. And as you said, it feeds you every dumb thing that's ever happened to me in my life, every traumatic event every and this is what's you know this is what's great about writers and what's wrong with us is someone stabs you and you go well now i know what being stabbed is like <laughs> you know like now i can now i can write from the perspective of a victim of a violent crime you know that's uh it is a it can be a gift and you know rylan was talking earlier about the concept of you know struggling with demons and that's always the metaphor i use for why genre is great is that struggling with demons in the real world looks and feels a certain way. And it's very difficult to photograph it in a way that's as evocative as mm. so showing someone actually struggling with real demons. Yeah. And the audience will get from your scene of struggling with real demons, the metaphor. metaphor. Yeah. And if there's no metaphor, it's shitty. <laughs> you know, if you have <laughs> yeah, real demons and it doesn't really express anything and it's not about your thoughts, your fears, your whatever, then then it doesn't it doesn't have resonance. There's a line that popped into my head and it it's a it's a it's a testament to Cronenberg that I can't remember if it's Cronenberg or Burroughs or some or some collaboration between the two of them. But uh, William Lee's talking typewriter says to him, you know, it's the sad truth. And writers live the sad truth like everybody else. The only difference is they file a report. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and we're, we're out here filing reports. That's the, we're, we're sending in dispatches from the real world or we're not doing our job. And mm -hmm. that's the, you know, and uh, I think you were saying, Fabrice, specifically I, well, that I, Noir is the New Black was uh, inspired by the BLM protests. That was the thing that was the kickoff 
No, it was it was it was triggered. It was triggered by the assassinations of all these black people last year by the police. That's what triggered it. Uh, and then and and then because again, I I've been a journalist for a very long time. I started researching and and looking looking into stuff, and and the anger grew even more because um, I come from a country where. Uh, we're not educated. Like guns are not. There are no guns in in the streets. They're they're not. I mean, the police have they have guns. They're like small guns, and they barely use. Them. So it's 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 extremely rare that you that you have those type of incidents in France. Um, you you have incidents. I mean, it's it's a violent country. There were five revolutions. So France know knows a lot about violence, but but not that not that kind and not systemic in that regard. Um, uh, but that's not what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say, echoing what all of you guys just said before, is a relationships and experience extremely important. In 2016, I did a book called Intertwined, which was a uh, is a book with three categories of characters. You had Chinese people, you had Haitians, and you had one per one character that is extremely important to me. Uh, that is a uh, a Jewish Asian woman, uh, and. The, for these three, I had to make an, an extensive research. I went to China, um, and and I had the the privilege of having a huge Asian community in New York, who lived in my area, and um, and every time I had a question, I could come to them, and mm -hmm. when they I, I I made them read the first version of the of the book, first episodes of the book, and the first thing that they said was thank you. We don't. We don't look like we're not formulaic. We don't look like uh, uh, characters that are not characters. The Asian characters have names. The, uh, the the thing is, you have to treat characters like people. They're fully fleshed. All of them, including the one that you only name in the back. All characters are important. All of them. And, um, and the other thing that I wanted to say, and because we've been talking about the process, and it's funny because. Um, uh, as opposed to all of you, I have a second uh, layer to 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 when I'm uh, enraged, which is I draw, and, um, and and strangely, when I want to let the fire out, I write, but when I want to focus and be quiet, I take a pen and paper and I draw, and and this this cools me down a lot because it helps me focus, and sometimes when I'm we all have I mean this podcast is called the writer's block so let's talk about it for a second um when when i have when i have a, a writer's block trying to write something i just stop what i'm doing i take a pen and paper and i draw and the character and i draw the characters that i can't come up with like lines that i can't come up with the right scenes for and usually focus comes back because i'm in my zone again and i can do it not everyone can do that i understand but even if you're doing stick figures in your head, you know, they're real. <laughs> there's, there's something that's interesting because I just did the uh, Sundance episodic lab. And one of the exercises we did for writer, and we did this at HBO as well, is that you, um, there's a different part of your brain that's activated when you put pen to paper, as opposed to being on your laptops. So just take a notebook and place your pen and write without lifting your pen and just just like stream of consciousness write right. 
you have writer's block and it's amazing. It opens up, it it doesn't solve all the problems, but it just it just activates something very different in the brain creatively. Back to basics. Yeah. Yes, yep. we did that. Uh, that was uh, Bard. I went to Bard. They have this thing, uh, which <laughs> I think, honestly, it's uh, driven by a certain amount of disrespect that our college president has for the American high school. Uh, bef- when freshmen come into Bard, there's three weeks in October, in uh, August, before everybody else shows up. And it's literally just a writing workshop. And it's literally just high school probably didn't teach you how to be good at this. So let's start. And a lot of it is free writing. A lot of it is learning how to just let it all out. And for myself, process wise, I'm older than word processing programs. I'm older than electric typewriters, I think. And uh, maybe not, maybe a couple of years. And uh, to this day, my process is I have a notebook for everything that I work on. And even if all that goes in the notebook is one sentence before I sit at a computer and start writing it, I usually outline in a notebook. Yes. Uh, back in the day, my I, when I didn't own a computer, but I had a friend with one, I got into the process of I would write a spec script completely on legal pads. Wow. And then the second draft was typing it. Because ultimately, while you're retyping your lame first draft dialogue, you're going to change it and it's going to be better. Like So it, yeah. the handwriting part to me is always sort of the built-in first draft. Yes. Yeah. If I write something down and then I'm forced to type it, inevitably I will rethink while I'm typing. And so right there I've got step, you know, step one. Yeah, as far as putting pen – no, go ahead, Rylan. I was just going to say it's a similar thing. I have to, I have to go out and walk. Mm. Um, I have to kind of – I have to find it. I sort of like – you know, if I have a little writer's block, I will empty my mind out right here where I'm sitting because this is where I sit and write. Um, and I will just go out and I will walk until I find it and I will just fill my, my head up with stuff. And then, you know, and then at some point it's full, I've cracked it. I have to get back home as quickly as possible and then just vomit it on, you know, into like a word doc or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, so it's my, um, yeah, that's my version of that, I guess, which is a, a sort of I, different, but, but I know, but, I'm not but, but I, I know, I know that it's out there somewhere. I just need to, yeah. I, I need to walk to the right place and find it. I, I've heard other writers say this and me when I'm blocked, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. A shower. A shower? If I take yeah. a shower while I'm stuck on something, there's yeah. something about like, it's sure. almost a sensory deprivation yeah. chamber. You're in there and there's hot water and you're staring up in space you know, and you know, the number of times I have stepped out of the shower and like grabbed a pen and gone, that's the second act curtain. Okay, good. The the, the number of things that some, the the number of times that something has hit me in the shower and, and, and and here's a great (laughs) shower story. So, uh, so on, on the heels of, of fast and the furious six, uh, we, uh, my, my film TV writing partner and I sell a big movie to Justin Lin. Um, and uh, and it's based on one of our short stories, and he really likes the short story, and and we have our first powwow with Justin, and um, and we're supposed to come in with all these ideas, and so like any of us would, we have you know we have this this plot that we that that we're excited about, um, we have these these character dynamics, these character arcs that are going to play out very like poetically and nice, and we're all excited about it, and so we sit down with Justin, 
and 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 we're so excited about it, and we're pitching this all out, and 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 the execs are excited, and 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 they're but Justin is just kind of like blank faced, um, and at some point he kind of tires of our our gibbering, and he puts a finger on. <laughs> he's like, guys, let me tell you a story. He's like, uh, he's like fast five, couldn't figure it out, couldn't wrap my mind around it. Uh, uh, you know, we're we're writing and writing, couldn't find the movie. He's like, I had to take a break. He's like, I was in the shower. <laughs> I'm in the shower one day and it finally hits me. He's like, Vin and Paul dragging a safe through Rio. He's like, boom, found the movie. <laughs> whole movie made sense to me. I could see the whole thing right then and there. He's like, so this is what I want you to do. He's like, go take a shower if you need to. He's like, but I want you to come back with five versions of that five versions of Vin and Paul <laughs> dragging a safe through Rio. He's like, then I'll be able to see uh, 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 the movie. So we had to go off. We, we had to shelve all of our character dynamics and thematics and everything like that. And we had to spend two weeks drumming up, uh, you know, our versions of Vin and Paul dragging a safe through Rio. Uh, and we had to write up a, you know, five or six page document, just sort of outlining them. We give it to him. He reads through them and he's like, I like this one, this one, and this one go make the, you know, go write the movie. And so we had to kind of, it was almost like writing by Mad Libs. We had to sort of like, didn't care about the other stuff, but it was yep. like these three set pieces I love. And so write a movie that includes these things that connect, like that connects these things like dots. I, so I, there's I the shower. This, I say this with love and as someone who has directed movies, most directors know nothing about story and couldn't find a story with both hands. Some incredibly powerful directors who have won Academy Awards have no idea what a great script or a Talbot script is. Mm. You, if you, if you hand Ridley Scott a pile of dirty laundry that's got a couple of great images in it, he will think it's a great script and make a terrible movie out of it. If you hand him the greatest script ever made, he will make him the greatest movie ever made. That's just there are people out there that just don't have that story yeah. gene. Tim Burton's another one where it's just like no idea what the what works or what doesn't work. Much more common is the Justin Lin, sell them three great set pieces and they will see a movie around the three great set pieces. If you read Ernest Lehman talking about North by Northwest is a great script. It's a as good a movie as anyone could possibly make in that genre. And it literally was Hitchcock sitting down with Lehman going, guy hanging off the nose of uh, Mount Rushmore. Guy with Lincoln under Lincoln's nose. A plane chasing a guy in a field a murder at the United Nations. That's all I've got. <laughs> you know, like, I want to make those three scenes. You find a way that those three scenes happen in one movie and we're gold. And I, I worked with a low-budget film director, one of the first things I ever wrote when I was 25, and it was literally two girls in bikinis in a, in a dune buggy being chased by an auto gyro. I'm not kidding. I have made that film. <laughs> Some, sometimes, sometimes it, it, I mean, it's how IDs come. It's how, uh, I it's mean, not, even in comics, it, I mean, it's, it's, it, not, I mean, I remember no, go ahead. when I pitched, when I pitched Spider-Man Noir to Dave Hine for the first time, I only, I, I was shaving myself and in front of my mirror, which is, as you understand it, I'm not shaving anymore. But at the time I was shaving, it was like, I was, I was, I was, I was not dapper, just like you guys. But uh, but I was I was still shaving, so I was shaving, and I, I, and it was a, a, a one morning in London, and I got the idea, and I just had the opening scene from Spider-Man Noir and the name, that's all I had, and I went to David Hine, 
and I said, okay, it might be ridiculous because I've had never written a single comic in my entire life, especially not in a language that is not my, my uh, like uh, mother tongue. And um, I have that. I have J. John Jameson is dead. We don't know who killed him. Uh, Spider-Man is all in black and is sitting on his desk and the cops are coming. And he looked at me like, it's, no, it's never going to work. And, um, and then he changed his mind. And then we started uh, retrofitting every element into this. And he brought his own flavor and he brought uh, pulp elements into this. But, uh, but sometimes, even in comics, you just have one scene and you have to make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, think- why, that's why collaborative work is w- wonderful for that because you have another brain to pitch it to and will like you will instantly kill the bad ideas. <laughs> you hope and pray. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think it's I think it's also there's a difference between inspiration what inspires us. I think a lot of us have had those. Like, you wake up from a dream, and you're like, oh my god, this will make a great script, and and if it will or not is is up for debate. But we have those. I mean, some some of the best work that I've done has come out of, and that of others that I've read have come out of just one crystal, just one image. Oh, you know, absolutely. And, and that's that's what's fun. But we build story from that. It's the inspiration for story. But I, I, I'm always fascinated by writer directors and how and, and the, I'm always drawn to those films the most because you are getting that combination of vision and story. And, yeah. and it just I love it. It's there, uh, is, there is something to be said, though, even in the greatest writers, direct writer directors, there's something I call genius syndrome, which is when you no longer have anyone willing to tell you that something doesn't work. Yes. Yeah. And I've I mean, seen great directors yeah. who, if they had one no bullshit person around them willing to say, this shot has gone on so long and is so self-indulgent and the audience has wrung every ounce of art out of it and you can move <laughs> on to another shot. Uh, and and they don't have someone to tell that to them. Uh, my, my argument against the auteur theory is always this. The Phantom Menace has one screenwriter and Fellini's eight and a half has four. <laughs> So even the greatest artist working at the height of his powers in pure control mm. of everything he was doing wanted to sit in a room with three other guys and go, what if Guido gets on a train at the end? Mm-hmm. No, not a train. You know, like, yeah, it's good to have a room with a couple of people in it who you can go, I see it starting out in a traffic jam. Okay, tell me more about the traffic jam. You know, it's it helps. Mm-hmm. And I'm someone who works alone a lot. Mm-hmm. But because of the pandemic, the last comic I did, we just ended up with a huge amount of time to work on it. And the artist kept, Dave Acosta, kept having really good ideas. <laughs> up until the last minute, we had the thing completely done and not colored or lettered. And he had an idea that I was able to add in the lettering and in the coloring. Mm-hmm. Like the villain, he w- the whole thing is entirely done. He's like, what if the villain's a fraud? And I was like, oh, you, because they're all, they've all been transformed by this drug interaction. So they're literal zombies and their skin turns orange. <laughs> and yeah, I know it wasn't subtle. Uh, and we had a thing at the end where the, the 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 cure for zombieism is splashed in the guy's face, and Dave came up with this idea, and I was like, "Okay, so if 
if what's running down his face is orange paint and Elvira is saying, oh my God, you're a fraud, instead of take that loser or whatever the line was, we can get that idea in. <laughs> like I, I still have a way of getting your great idea into this script at the very last minute. Uh, and you know, the world is full of writers who would have said, fuck you, you're the artist, shut up and sit down. But I was like, no. I, <laughs> the people who don't realize that their collaborators do nothing but make them look smart and that they're gonna get all the credit anyway, right, I feel right. sorry for them. Well, that's really why, and that's why TV has, I think, had this amazing dream is because you ended up with, you realize the collaborative process, and if you get great writers in the room, all helping each other, uh, you get some great work. Especially if they're a diverse group of writers and not the seven same white guys from the Ivy League. Don't get me started. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've seen those rooms where it's the same seven white guys from the Ivy yeah. League. And they don't make very good television. I'm sorry, they don't. It's and that, uh, yeah, and that diversity is is it's everything from age to race yeah. to religion to gender to you know to with LGBTQ plus. I mean, it really, and and not being the only one in the room. language. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and Culture, yes. education, and when you're the international, only, if yep. you're the only one in the room, if you're the only. Frenchman in the room, or you're the only black person in the room, or you're the only gay person in the room, and you're and it doesn't give you enough agency, enough of a voice usually, and so. Uh, but I, for two sentence horror stories, the room was um, a black woman, a Latin, two Latinas, um, a gay woman, a white woman, an Asian man, and 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 another. Uh, we had a showrunner who left, but a showrunner who was a black man. So. It was the most diverse, it was my first room and it was that diverse. And the ideas that we came up with from the variety of experiences and cultures, and it, it was fantastic. And I was spoiled with that room, but I saw in that, that there's there's so much that we're leaving on the table when we don't diversify. Oh, absolutely. And there's also, there's an element, I never wanna downplay the giant pervasive racism in all of it. But there's also an element of talent that gets involved. And that is that a lot of the non-diversity you've seen in movies and television for the past hundred years is sheer fucking laziness. <laughs> because you, you introduce a new character. Uh, uh, I don't know, Dr. Smith is, uh, I don't know, a middle-aged white guy, like me. I'm a, I'm a middle-aged well, white guy. Let's make Dr. Smith a middle-aged white guy. There's also fear. David, there's also yeah. fear. There's also oh, yeah. fear that the audience wouldn't accept it, that there will be consequences. Like, oh, I remember I, I, that. I, I like, to, I like well. to remind everybody, and I'll, I'll get back to comics, that the founders of our industry were 99% Jewish and that they had to hide everything that they were because mm -hmm. they were afraid of being rejected. They, right. had, they, had, they had to be something that they were not. And it played against them in every possible way. That's why we can't forget that lesson. Well, and I, I'm willing to, I will go further and say that the difference between Superman and Clark Kent is Superman's a Jewish guy walking around the world pretending to be a white guy named Clark Kent. Uh, right. Because though the Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and uh, Siegel and Schuster were all smuggling their Jewishness uh, yeah. into every, you know, Ben Grimm gets their names. eventually. Uh, my father wrote private detective novels about a hero named Ed Noon, who was, I believe, Irish. My father's name was Michelangelo Avaloni. 
he was very sure that in 1953, a detective series about Ed Mezzogiorno would not have sold. So he anglicized his main character yeah. In, or yeah. in order to sell it. And part of that breaks my heart mm. in a way, uh, in the same way as recently as American Beauty, like Alan Ball won an Oscar for sort of not being able to write the true story that he really wanted to write. Mm. Because so. the, he, the, the, to me, that's a closeted movie with a closeted actor playing a closeted person and the movie doesn't even know it. You know what I mean? It's, mm. you wonder like all of the people who were forced to subsume their identities, Tennis, would, would Blanche Dubois have been a woman if Tennessee Williams had lived in 2021? Right. Or would he write about a middle-aged man, yeah. a middle-aged gay man who is who that character is Mm-hmm. You know, I I am unconvinced that Tennessee Williams would have written so many plays about straight people, as an example. And would they have been better or worse? I can't tell you. I can't tell you if the tension of that is what makes Blanche Dubois great, or if Blanche Dubois was Phil Dubois, would that not also be a play everybody loved? But, mm-hmm. you know, the... So go ahead. Uh- no, no, I was just going to say the flip side of that is what we're seeing now, especially for black creatives, is that we're be we're, it's like suddenly everyone's discovered, oh, my God, black characters sell black characters in, you know, Black Panther was such a hit. And so let's hire some black people. You write that black character. You write this black story. And there's something wonderful about being able to tell the story being told by black creatives. But I just had a conversation with um, with fellow writers from a lab. Um, who are all of you know, Asian and Latino and Black, and we're tired of being told this is the story you're relegated to tell. Right. This is the this, and it has to be often associated with crime and trauma. <laughs> and you can't just be people in the room who happen to be Black or Latino or Asian um, or gay, and you know whatever BIPOC or just marginalized people who can just tell a story from your experience. So I can be in the room maybe for the show Ozarks. And I love Ozarks, it's a great show. Um, I can bring my experience as a human being to that show. I happen to be a black writer. And then also I'll write this feature that's about missing black women and I can do that too. Mm-hmm. But there's this thing that's begin beginning to really um, and what happens when you relegate people to only writing cert- about the very narrow part Stereotype. of the is that it becomes a fad and then you move on from it and we don't, and we don't want to see that. Oh yeah. No. And no one does that. No one does that to white writers. No one tells white writers, you can only write about Protestants. I'm sorry. You know, you can <laughs> only, you can only write about people in Connecticut. Sorry. That's, 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 that's all we're letting you do is uh, we have this one character who's a, Middle manager from Connecticut. That's uh, that's, that's look. Well, you can write about a David. comedy writer who went to the Ivy League. Yeah. That's that's what you can write. If if that was the case, literally everyone on The Simpsons would be from uh, Harvard or Yale or Princeton. Uh, <laughs> I mean, but instead, I, I, they're, they're writing they're, yeah. about middle class Americans. I mean, there 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 is this other thing that's been happening for you know. I mean, I've been writing in Hollywood for sixteen years now, and you know, I mean, I I I, I grew up in Detroit, and so a lot of my stories are just naturally set in Detroit because I'm 
because I'm from there. That's what I know, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're you're pitching an idea to your manager, and it's like, well, well, our protagonist is you know is is African American, and and, and they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you know, don't do that. And it's like, well, well, why not? It's it's Detroit. <laughs> there are a lot of African American people in Detroit, um, yeah. and it's like, yeah, but but then we could, you know, there are like three actors that we can go to then, and and you know, and 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 it, it gets shot down in the room, or or even worse, like, well, our main character is a woman, and and it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, why would you know, why would you do that? And so there's a lot of this stuff that was just that that that, that was killed before it even, you know, it's not even like we we wrote a script with a black character and then took it out and 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 it had you know it had the chance to be actually well it sold or it didn't it was just like there was this attitude mm -hmm. for the last 16 years that it wasn't even worth pursuing you know what i'm saying like even if it was better for the story or even if it grew naturally out of out of the environment or or or, or anything like that you know i mean i i, I or they I don't know how to it. sell it Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, yeah, exactly. They refuse to learn how to sell it, or they refuse to just. Uh, but, but, but what I will say is, is, is the hope that's coming. That's coming is that I'm, I'm, we're not remotely there yet, but I'm feeling it start to break down. You know, um, I mean, I, my, uh, my, uh, my protagonist in the jump is 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 black it, it takes place in detroit and and it's black and art, my artist is is black and I, i mean he literally drew himself you know um but but what i'm what, what, yeah but but what i'm seeing is is that people are excited about that story and 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 i'm i am not remotely hearing well what if you know what if what if the main character was ryan gosling you know or or you know it it, it, it i mean you could do this story with Ryan Gosling. It wouldn't be as rich. It wouldn't be, it's again, a story that takes place in Detroit. So it's, it, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be this story. It would be a different story told in the same world basically. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not hearing that this time. Uh, and that is, that is really interesting to me and really encouraging. Right. Um, yeah. I think uh, it's because yeah. it, 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 I think, I don't know if you read the, um, uh, the, the org um or consulting company um which one was it that 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 said that companies are leaving something like i don't know 30 billion dollars on the table because they're not being inclusive and diverse but i think it i think it's a multi-pronged kind of it has to happen from all different sides it has to be from the writer's room to the director to your to agents to network executives, it, it, it really has to happen all the way around. And, and uh, otherwise it's, it's going to happen in fits and starts, there'll be hurdles. And so I think the biggest hurdle that you, that you, that everybody just turns around and says, Oh, what, let's do it differently is making money. because that green speaks yeah. louder than anything else. So if people yeah. are making money, then they're suddenly starting to say, wait, we can change this model. So it's, I think, Uh, and also, I think people like Issa Rae and Macro and um, mm. uh, Ava, who created her own distribution channel, you know, do just going out and saying, we're just going to make the work and do the content and let yep. the world come to us. I think that's also been transformational. And I think that's a lesson for all creatives that you just, just do the damn work and, yep. and let them follow us. Well, and that, it, yeah, that, the money thing is such a smart, uh, it's such a smart comment because that, that is the only thing, you know, I mean, I, I'm talking about, you know, the, the idiots at the big agencies and all that stuff. And, and, and what, what has made them come around was, you know, the Tyler Perry's of the world, uh, you know, uh, uh, again, you know, he grew up not seeing himself in, in movies, right? 
And so he just went out and made the movies that he wanted to see that represented the the you know the people that he grew up with and everything. And 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 he puts you know he puts them out and people are like, oh my God, African American people want to see themselves in movies? Like they were <laughs> oh my God, this oh, wow, you know, they actually uh, you know and, and uh you know it took something like that. Um and 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 that's um you know th that's amazing. But 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 you hit it on the head before also where it's like there still ends up being this thing where it's like, okay, well. You know, this is a black movie, or this is, you know, or this is a, a a Latino movie, or or you know, and they're they're not just movies yet, right? And that's where we need to get, and and, and we're getting there slowly but surely, right? But, but remember, it's totally not there. I remember yeah. reading something about you know men not being able to uh, identify with female action stars, and I was like. Bitch, I just saw La Femme Nikita four times. What the hell are you talking about? Like, I, I, I love that, but she's better than Schwarzenegger. She's fantastic. I'll watch it again. And the thing that I always think about, though, is how they left that money on the table for 100 years. Yeah. It's insane. The, the audience was always there. It was always there to make money off of. They could always have made movies for everyone instead of just for a very narrow... One of my favorite old you know independent film stories i can't remember the name of the producer might have been sam arkov um sam fuller had a, a contract to make a bunch of low budget movies and he went went to his producer he said next one's called i think it was crimson kimono it's about two detectives in los angeles white guy japanese guy japanese american guy they both fall in love in the same girl and the producer goes, you're not going to tell me she chooses the Japanese guy, right? She chooses the Japanese guy. And he's like, <laughs> and he said, the guy literally went to a, went to his USA map on the wall and went, okay, I can't sell that in Alabama, mm -hmm. Mississippi. He's like, if you can make it for half a million dollars, I can make my money back. I can make my money back in LA, New York, Chicago, Seattle, Portland. I won't make a no one will book this in, you know, South Carolina, but I'll make it back in Brooklyn. It'll be fine. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, okay, I'll make it for a half a million dollars. And, you know, that producer isn't being racist. He's just going, the racists I deal with will not book this movie. Right, right. But he still was able to go, here's the formula by which we can make your movie where a white girl chooses a Japanese guy in the last reel and everyone's cool with it, you know? That's uh, yeah. You talk about people leaving money on the table. I mean, again, I go back to Tyler Perry because he got tired of people saying no to him, and so he went out and made them himself, and he owned all the rights and 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 all the money that came back came to him, and now he's like a billionaire. You know what I'm saying? It's 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 incredible. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that's why comic books are also so interesting because you you can create these entire worlds and you have you create IP, and you're creating IP. My my brother uh, used to work for uh, write for Marvel, and unfortunately, he's had a kind of a negative situation <laughs> with a character that he created because Marvel doesn't always um, doesn't always remunerate the way they should uh, and follow through the way that they promised. But, um, but the idea is that you can create this IP and if you are 100% the owner of that IP, um, you know, you're, you're changing the world. You're literally changing the world. And that's what I love about comic books as well. And you can, and you don't have to worry. I mean, I can cast it the way I want to and right. I can spend the budget that I want to. If I, if I want to travel the world, the universe, I can do whatever I want. And that is so freeing um, creatively. I love it.
And it, and you know, we can all point to experiences in our own life. Uh, art has saved my life and soul a thousand times. I can point yeah. to a three day strip run of peanuts that when I had, uh, when I had a, a family dispute that I couldn't understand and broke my heart, I saw a three day run of peanuts and I went, oh, <laughs> right. That's what is happening and that's what this is and it's okay and it happens to everybody, including Linus. <laughs> you know, like and, it's- uh, You know, people like to say, uh, to, to, to talk about this old Jack Kirby thing, like comics will break your heart. I actually say the opposite. Comics will save you, will main your heart. Because when you're true to what you believe and you choose that medium and you embrace and you love that medium, that medium will give you the love back a hundred times. And, and I think every Jack time I was, I always say what Jack meant was Marvel will break your heart. <laughs> oh that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's a different, what Jack that's was a different really story. saying is Stan Lee will break your heart, but that's another. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but, but you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. this medium, this medium is, has no limits, yeah. no limitation whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. We can do whatever we want with it. As yeah. the moment you get a book in the hands of an actual reader without any middle person in between, yeah. that person will cherish it, will read it, love it, cherish it, or mm -hmm. burn it or whatever they want to do with it. But they will, it will draw emotions. It will draw emotions. Yeah. And I know that I created my company exactly for the same reason that Tyler Perry, and I hope I I become Tyler Perry like one day, but but it's the same thing. It's like when your back is against the wall and nobody will nobody will say yes to you. Like last year, 2020, 300, 300 resume, 300 applications. I couldn't find a job in publishing because I was never the right type of person that they wanted to see. But at the same time, without that hard experience, there wouldn't be any fair square comics. There wouldn't be any new Orleans, new black. There wouldn't be any mutiny. Like we have to be resilient. We have to survive this. We we, we owe that to ourselves. And mm -hmm. I mean, I have kids. They're grownups. I have kids. I don't want to disappoint them either. I want to keep fighting the good fight mm -hmm. because yeah. because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And yeah. and the next Jack Jack Kirby is not recycling Jack Kirby comics over at Marvel. They're on Kickstarter with their fourth world. Yeah. Correct. Making their dark side and their Orion and their Mr. Miracle yes. and their forever. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Without Kickstarter without is a the blessing. Bullshit. Yeah. Yes. Without without all of without all of that other bullshit, you know, you know, those were acts of creation, not of recycling. Uh when Jack did it and, and when Stan did it, I will, you know, you gotta give him just because just because he was who he was, you can't uh you can't deny his incredible influence. But uh that's to me that's the hope of the future is all of this, uh, the democratization of the creation of art. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact that everyone now has the freedom that a writer or a painter had a hundred years ago to just sit down and do it. And the materials are just not that expensive. Uh, and it really is just a question of your time and your energy, uh, which is not to say it's easy or a challenge. I have had day jobs that I came home from and could not write a word for a year. You know, those are, those are the realities of it. But uh, it's so much better now than it was uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even five years ago in some ways, especially mm -hmm. 
you know, I can't speak to it personally, but on the diversity front, it seemed I was in a writer's room two years ago and I was the only white male and I was perfectly thrilled. <laughs> I was like, can it, can it always be like this? Cause these people are much nicer <laughs> than when I've been in rooms where it was only white men. Be nice. We've, we've reached about the hour and a half mark and I know uh, Melody has to run fairly soon. So let's wrap up with where can we find you and what are you up to and where, where can the kids look you up? Melody? Um, well, you can, you can catch my, uh, the episodes of Two Sentence Horror Stories on Netflix. Um, my, uh, my episode of SVU is up on Peacock and Hulu and it's uh, episode, it's uh, the 22nd season, episode 11, Our Words Will Not Be Heard. Um, you can, uh, Omni is now, volume two of my comic book is on sale now, um, Simon & Schuster, and you can get it from your local comic book store. You can get it online from different places. Um, Noir's New Black is still on sale. We have some copies left from um, Fair Square. Uh, I am uh, developing a, I'm writing a feature that I can't share anything about yet, but it's for um, Netflix and I'm very excited about that. And I think there's, and then the podcast will be, I'll be developing that and figuring out when that goes up soon. So and people can, if people follow you on Twitter, will you talk about these things so that you can, they can find yeah. them when they could? Definitely, definitely. So Melody M. Cooper on Twitter and on Instagram, it's Melody Cooper Film. Excellent. And Fabrice? Well, I'm very easy to find on all the networks at Fabrice Sapolsky. Um, and uh, you can follow our adventure uh, on fairsquarecomics.com, of course. Uh, right now, it's Mutiny on Kickstarter, uh, issue zero, with a lot of, it's packed with a lot of great stuff and a great art, um, and five variant covers, so be my guest, go and, and pledge as much as you can, um, and uh, Noir's the New Black, as Melody was mentioning, is still, is still available on our web store, uh, fairsquarecomics.com slash store, um, and uh, as for me, I still have uh, Lady Bird, which is a uh, YA webcomic that is every two weeks a new chapter on Anchor Comics and every issue completed on Global Comics. And uh, there will be a lot of, of great surprises in the future. Great. And Ryland? I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That's R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always spell it for the people who are uh, just listening because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and settled me with it. And now I have to spell it for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my books, the uh, Ringo Award-winning Aberrant, uh, and the uh, four-time Ringo-nominated uh, Banjacks are available in fine comic shops everywhere and via Amazon and Comixology and all that good stuff. Oh, so I didn't know we could we could those. we could show books. Let's show books. <laughs> yeah, show yes, books. for, for the video these. people at home. Pretty pretty. Yes, for the video people. The the, the iTunes people are scratching their head jealously. <laughs> And speaking of, uh, of books, uh, my astral projection thriller, The Jump, and uh, my Fargo-esque crime drama, The Peacekeepers, are available now via uh, Backerkit. Uh, if you go to uh, thepeacekeepers.backerkit.com or thejump.backerkit.com, all one word on those, uh, you can find those with plenty of goodies, autograph comics, all that stuff. So uh, check it out. Very nice. And... Uh... My website is davidavalonefreelance.com, which has the all the buttons that lead to all of the places. I do 
in addition to this podcast, I do a podcast called Pulp Today, where I read books I think you should have read and would enjoy. Uh, sometimes I have uh, guest stars on it, which is delightful. And uh, next thing I have coming out, which hasn't been announced, but I'm, I didn't actually sign an NDA, so I don't care, and I'm going to talk about it, uh, <laughs> is uh, Elvira meets Vincent Price, which is a delightful, a delightful romp, as always, with uh, cool. The Mistress of the Dark. And I have some more stuff coming up with her this year. And uh, and also, I'll be pitching something to Febreze from Mutiny, I'm quite sure. No problem. I'm here. Don't right. don't hesitate. Everyone Thank has a chance. Thank you so much for joining us. This was really terrific. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks, guys. Bye -bye. Thanks for listening. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more Madcap Hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.